Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I really appreciated that it was read in a different language. It gives us kind of a, a newness to it, doesn't it? And it actually brought to mind a lot of things. Thank you for doing that. Introductions are important. They tell you something. For example, listen to how some of the great authors in the English language chose to introduce their, what we consider, great works. And maybe you can try and figure out which ones they are along the way. The first one's easy. First line, Elmer Gantry was drunk. He was eloquently drunk, lovingly and pugnaciously drunk. That, of course, is Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. How about this one? And this is maybe for you women more for the men, maybe. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. How about this one? Miss Brooke had the kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress. Middlemarch, Elliot, that's right. This is one of my favorites. It was inevitable. The scent of bitter almonds always reminds him of the fate of unrequited love. Love in the time of cholera. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Call me Ishmael. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Karenina, Tolstoy. Each of these introductions tell you something about what is to come, doesn't it? It might tell you who's telling the story, like Moby Dick. It might tell you who the main character is, like Elmer Gantry. Or whether it's going to be a happy or sad story, like Anna Karenina. Or what to expect, unrequited love, like love in the time of cholera. Genesis chapter 1 is an introduction. God is introducing himself and his story. Here God inspires Moses to set up, if you will, the rest of the Bible. He wants us to know a little bit about what is to come. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 1 of our Bibles. Perhaps the most famous first line in all of literature In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters. He called seas. And God saw it was good. 
And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give, give light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He also made the stars and set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, and livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This chapter is so rich, so deep, 
I, I considered just breaking it up into multiple weeks. Here God is inspiring Moses to set up the rest of what is to come. And as we read it, there are so many questions we come to the text with, so many current day issues that people come asking this text. From creation methods to the age of the earth. From the transgender question that has just come up recently to the age of the earth, to dietary requirements. And it may help us in some areas, Genesis 1, to to work through those. But I don't think that that's what God had in mind when he gave Moses these words. Those are things that we consume ourselves with. And Genesis 1 helps us with those. But that's not the purpose of Genesis 1. As I read God's introduction to his book, I think that there are at least five major things that God wants us to come away with. First and foremost, and most obviously, he wants us to come to the conclusion that it's an introduction of him. He's introducing himself to mankind. One of the Bible studies I use, one of the methods I use when I study scripture, is the God-man-Christ-me method. I don't know if you know this method, but you first read the scripture and you say, what is this saying about God? Then you ask the second question, what is this saying about man, man and mankind? Third question, what is this saying about Christ? His, his substitution, his sacrifice, his, his righteous life, his death, his resurrection. And then finally, you ask, then what about me? How does this apply to my life? This method, first and foremost, what you're looking for is, what is the Bible saying about the main character? What is the text in front of me saying about who the Bible is about. And the most famous line in all of literature tells us a ton, doesn't it? In the beginning, God. It actually tells us a ton. God wants us to know that he is first and foremost the main character of the Bible. Just look at the emphasis, and this is a good exercise to go through in Genesis 1. Look at the emphasis on himself. Just underline this afternoon on your Sabbath, How many times he mentions himself, God. And if your Bible is anything like my Bible, I hope it is, it's around 35 times he mentions himself. Right from the start, God wants us to know that he is the main focus. Be looking for me in all the rest. Just like Sinclair Lewis, Elmer Gantry was drunk. Who is the the book about? Elmer Gantry. Who's this book about? Yahweh, Elohim God, God Almighty. He wants us to get to know him. Think about that just for a second. The infinite, unknowable, totally other God wants us to get to know him. Soren Kierkegaard and Karl Barth both speak of the infinite qualitative difference between God and the world. The infinite qualitative difference between God and the world. And they wrote that God is totally other 
then people are inherently incapable of knowing him. There's truth in that. Our, our, our peanut brains are, in one sense, incapable of grasping the infinite. But God lowers himself. He deems it worthy of us. And he opens himself up from the very beginning. I want you to know me. I want you to know me. Through the 66 books, the 1,189 chapters, the 31,102 verses of the Bible, cry out, get to know me. He wants his precious creation, us, to know him intimately. So what do we learn about God in this chapter? I think, first and foremost, right out of the blocks, he wants us to know he's infinite. God is infinite. In the beginning, God, the atheist astronomer Carl Sagan, is famous for saying, the cosmos is all there is, has been, or ever will be. And we know from the first words of Scripture that's not true. Don't we? Right here, God tells us he was before creation. He was. The, in the burning bush, Moses said, who shall I say is, is sending me? And what's God's answer of who he was? He wants to, what's the name? What, what, what describes him the most? God gives himself, I am. He's, he's the, the all everlasting current. The psalmist declares, and I use this as our call to worship, before the mountains brought forth, were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. Do you realize that our brains just, just short circuit when we meditate on that? He, he doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. Everything that we know tells us that is not true. And yet that is God. He's totally other. And that should, you know, one of the effects of meditating on Scripture, meditating on who God is, is it brings us to our knees in humility and awe. And do you know what humility and awe, do you know what another word for that is? Worship. Humility and awe, what we're doing right now. Second thing that God wants us to know from this is that about himself is that he, obviously he is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He wants us to know, I am the creator. He created everything that we, we experience with our senses, everything we touch, everything we smell, everything we hear. That all of this, we look around cries out, creator, designer. That this did not come out of chaos. Now whether you believe in the young earth or the old earth, in five literal days or day ages, in the gap theory, in the apparent age theory, in the 24-hour punctuated age theory, as born-again believers who, who believe that this is inspired by God, we believe one thing in common, that God created. 
as I covered last week, this creation, this creator should, should engender in us and, and point us to how God is sovereign in our lives, right? As creator, he's sovereign. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over animals. He's sovereign over us. That means he owns everything. I love that. I'm not going to remember that word, Stuart, but tell me the word in Lomway again for God, who is the original owner of everything. Say it loud. Mwanene. Mwanene. is the word for God in the Lomway, and it just means owner of everything, right? Owns everything. Mwanene. He owns everything. We are his, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not. If you're here today and you're visiting and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, I'm really ecstatic that you're here. But you need to know a truth that maybe you don't like, and that is that God is Moanene. He owns you. You're his. And that knowledge should affect us. As a matter of fact, he wants us to know he's creator so that it actually changes us. That's what the scripture does for us. It changes us. And as I was pondering this, I was thinking, how does God being sovereignly over us and creator of us, how should that affect us? It should put us in our place is what it should do. Right? It should put us in our place. Where we stand in respect to God. How we respond to God. I was watching a YouTube on a panel discussion and and Archie Sproul happened to be on the panel discussion and it was a question and answer thing from the audience. And the question was read by the moderator. This question. Since God is slow to anger and patient... Why, when man first sinned, was God's punishment so severe and long-lasting? How would you have responded to that? R.C. Sproul jumped in. And he said, he started explaining the abundant grace that is found even in the fall of man. How God clothed him and how God didn't kill him and punish him. And he started getting worked up. I could see he was starting to get worked up. If you know R.C. Sproul, sometimes he gets this way. He came to a point where he basically said, don't you realize that dirt defied the living God? And there was some chuckle in the audience. And he got angry. And he said this, what's wrong with you people? I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and who we are. And I think that by God revealing himself as sovereign creator, it puts us in our place, right? It should. God is the sovereign creator and we are his his creation. And we need to realize our place our humble place, our small place in one sense. 
so much more that could be said about God that we could make a whole sermon about him. But we come to our second point that I think God makes in his introduction. And that is, he not only wants to introduce us, but he also wants to introduce creation. He wants to introduce creation as good. I hope that as I read the scriptures and as you read along with me, that you got that idea through the pauses of, and it was good, 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 and it was very good. You can't ignore the sixfold benedictions found there. He wants you to know creation as good. Even after the fall. You know, it's easy to go, well, yeah, creation was good in Genesis 1, but how about after Genesis 3.16? After Genesis 3.16, creation is still good. Broken, fallen, but still good. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. But he wants us to know that creation is good. David Atkinson in his commentary says this, Before anything is said about evil or pain or sin or disorder, we need to first hear the note of excited pleasure. I love that. What God made is good. This is the basis of celebration and enjoyment of God's world which in some Christian teaching has gotten lost behind an almost exclusive emphasis of sin. We need to recover a sense of delight in the good things, even though, as we shall see in Genesis 3, there is a shadow. Don't you think that's true? Maybe it's just me. But when I look at creation, I look at it through the lens of sin. And I've kind of lost the, it is good concentrate so much on the fall we forget how God created it. We need to get excited about the idea of creation being good. I was just reflecting on a conversation I had with Kay Woody. Now here she is again. Right out on the side of the of the uh sidewalk here and she was planting and and uh we were talking and then we both stood back and we just looked at the decorative cabbages and the and the you know beautiful flowers she had created. And, and I was thanking Kay, and I was saying, look at how beautiful those are. I mean, that's, that's still good. Even though fallen, even though broken, even though, and I asked her, I said, these beautiful cabbages, are they perennials? No, they're annuals, they're going to die. We're reminded of the curse. It's still good. Let's let, not let our knowledge that it is indeed broken inhibit our praise and appreciation and love for it. God in creation also wants to know that creation is orderly. Creation is orderly. I would put before you that the best way to see Genesis 1 in all the confusion of, of what we've been taught and, and, and all the different theories, the best way to read Genesis 1 is in terms of forming and filling. That's what God is doing. He's forming the areas and then he's filling the areas. And day one, he formed light. And in day four, he put the luminaries there to fill that space. In day two, he created sky and water. And in day five, he put birds and fish. 
In day three, he created land, and on day six, he created the things that fill the land, the animals and vegetation and man. In creation, God is showing that he's a God of order. He's a God of order. Paul may have been thinking about this as he was penning the 14th chapter that we call of his first letter, when he was trying to, to teach the Corinthian church how to properly worship. And do you remember what he said there? His reason for, for saying, listen, you guys are all over the map. You have to have an orderly worship. Worship, worship must be orderly. What's his reason for it? Because God is a God of order and of peace. I don't know if Paul was thinking of Genesis 1, but it's certainly true. God is a God of order. He creates orderly creation. And, ipso facto, what Paul's saying, our worship together should not be a cacophony of confusion. It should be orderly. I have to tell you, just as an aside, as I visited churches on my sabbatical, this is one of the things I reported back to the elders. I said, in the small sample that I have had on my sabbatical, worship is ad hoc and disorderly. And I told them, I said, I think that's sin. To come before God in an ad hoc, disorderly manner. The living God. I sat where they didn't know what next hymn they were going to do and who was going to do it. On the side. It is spiritually fascinating that in general man believes the opposite of what Genesis and who God is, is saying. It's spiritually fascinating that we en masse as humankind believe that from chaos, order came. We get all bent out of shape over this, don't we, when we talk, start talking about the Big Bang and macroevolution. And I understand righteous indignation protecting God. I get that, guys. But I want to I challenge you a little bit. I want to implore you to see that this understanding that the, that the world has come to of from chaos order instead of from or, order chaos is actually a spiritual issue. And it should break your heart. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He goes on to talk about so they cannot see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about here, here in this church about how the gospel is spiritually understood, right? You can't understand the gospel without the spirit discerning it. You can't. It's a spiritual problem. Unbelief is a spiritual problem. And I put it to you that the, the, the deep roots of evolution that mankind has grabbed hold of and, and refuses to let go is a spiritual issue. And next time you're in a conversation with somebody 
And they say there's no God, no creator. We all came from this primordial goo. Instead of it making you angry and you wanting to poke them in the eye with a sharp stick, let that break your heart because they're, they're spiritually blind. They can't see it. I mean, would you get angry at a, at, a, at a physically blind person that is stumbling over a sidewalk? I can't believe that they stumbled over the sidewalk. No, your heart goes out to them. Let your heart break for the world in this area. See, everything points to a designer. A car, a Swiss watch, a computer motherboard just doesn't happen. And neither does this. Calvin, John Calvin wrote, We know God, who is himself invisible, only through his works. This is the reason why the Lord places the fabric of heaven and earth before our eyes, that he may invite us to a knowledge of himself. Isn't that beautiful? Rendering himself in a certain manner manifest to them. Thirdly, Genesis one, God wants to introduce us to not just himself and creation, but to his crowning creation, and that is man. Look at verses 26 and following with me. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and livestock over the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We'll talk much more extensively about what it means to be God's image bearer in a couple weeks. But I think God wants us to understand here is that man is the crowning jewel of his creation. Man is the crowning jewel of his creation. The New York uh, Museum of Natural History once arranged a whole room in their museum accordance to the way it was supposed to look if you were a dog. So, in this particular room, the legs of tables were huge pillars. Chairs were lofty thrones. And the mantle above the fireplace appeared as if it was an unscalable peak. Our today's culture inundates us with the belief that we humans are on par with animals, doesn't it? It wants us to enter the room like that and go, every other life on this planet is equal in value in God's eyes. Listen to me. That's a lie. That's wrong. Genesis 1 right here is proof of that. God does value all life, but he takes man and gives him things, and we'll explore this in a couple weeks, that he does not imbue with any other living thing on this earth. Mankind is special. 
We see it in the responsibility that God gives man. We see it in the abilities that God gives man. But most importantly, we see it in what we call, we're given the imago Dei, the image of God in ourselves. When God created man, he created him special, high above other creation. We are, as Zechariah 2.8 puts it, the apple of God's eye. You know, that's come into our common vernacular. My wife is the apple of my eye. We are the apple of God's eye. He did not send his son Jesus to resist temptation and live a perfectly sinful life for your dog. Jesus did not come and substitute himself for your cat. Jesus did not have your rabbit, your ferret, or your fish in mind as he was hanging, dying on the cross. He had you, and he had me on his mind. He had his precious crown jewel of mankind on his mind. And Genesis 1 screams that, and the rest of Scripture does too. Fourthly, God wants us to introduce us to the rhythm of rest. The rhythm of rest, an introduction to rest. Look with me at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 2. The seventh day God had finished the work he had done. And on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God, the omnipotent creator, was not tired. The rest is not the kind of rest that we need. He rested intentionally. Why did he do it? What was his grand motivation? One thing is to give us a rhythm of life to emulate. Give us a rhythm of life to emulate. One of my aha moments in seminary was when my professor, and maybe you got this when you were five. It took me until I was in my 30s. One of my aha moments was a seminary professor said, do you realize that the week is arbitrary? I'd never thought about that before said every other time frame we have can be physically explained. The day, okay, sun comes up, sun goes down, day. The month, okay, the lunar cycle, okay, get that. The year, okay, four kind of seasons that they can be delineated, and then later on we saw that it was a circling around the sun, okay, get that. But seven days? nothing that says we should count things in sevens. Why not twos? Why not fives? Why not tens? Tens are better. They've been trying to get us on the decimal system forever. But seven, there's no reason for it because God wanted it to be separate and spiritual. I'm giving you this because it's a spiritual reason. We're to emulate our God. Work six, rest one. We're to rest like God. And this rhythm of rest is really, really important. It's reiterated over and over again in the Mosaic Law, isn't it? 
It's like, why is this Sabbath thing so important? I mean, you must have thought about that as you were translating, you know, the, the Pentateuch. Why the Sabbath thing all the time? Leviticus 23.3 tells them again, work six, rest one. And it's so important that at the end of Exodus 31, verse 4, it says, listen, if you don't do this, if people in your community are not following this rhythm, it's the death penalty. Are you kidding? For Sunday? Why is God so serious about this rhythm? Deserves a sermon in itself, but briefly, listen to what Sinclair Ferguson wrote. The weekly nature of the Sabbath continues as a reminder that we're not home yet. And since this rest is ours only through union with Christ and his death and resurrection, our struggles to refuse the old life and enjoy the new continue. Ferguson grasps one of the major ideas of the Sabbath, and that is to remind us that we're not home yet. This is one of the great lessons of Sunday, isn't it? Have you ever thought about it? What's Sunday for? Why do I even attempt to go to church and, and honor the Sabbath? It's to remind us that although we're inundated with the world being our home, we have to have a place where we're reminded this isn't your home this isn't all there is. This isn't the be-all, end-all. You need to be reminded of that because as soon as I and you leave that door and then you know have a little lemonade on the lawn and then we get in our cars and we drive down High Road, by the end of High Road, we're thinking about the world. And getting up to going to worship, unlike our neighbors, should remind us that we're different. Treating the day differently than our neighbors? Do you treat the day differently than your neighbors? Even to the worship service that we are enjoying right now. From the outset, we come and we praise somebody else. We think of somebody else. We talk to somebody else. We sing God-centered, God-glorifying music. Do you realize the music isn't for us? The I don't like this has no context in a worship service. We bow and pray to a God we cannot see. We dunk and sprinkle people. Odd. We pass little crackers in a few minutes. What does that mean? We even preach the word of God in a, in a monologue, one-way manner. There are many today who are saying, this, what I'm doing right now is totally outdated. should be gone should be a two-way communication. That's the way the world is. That's the way the world works, not the way God works. God speaks to his people. God is speaking to you right now. That's why the seeker-sensitive movement is so detrimental to the Christian community. It tries to make worship more palatable, more friendly, more like the world, less strange. No! 
this should be strange. This should be different. Because that's not our home. This is more like your home. It's not perfect. But this is more like our home. And we need to be reminded of that. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, God wants to introduce us to his son. An introduction to Christ. Jesus had, uh, God had Jesus on his mind as he was inspiring this to Moses. If we have doubts of that, we only have to turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The parallels between Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and John 1, 1 through 3 cannot be ignored. God had Christ on his mind as the word. That's the first thing that we see in Genesis. God created, the spirit hovered, and God said, he spoke, there was a word there. And John identifies that speaking, that word, as Christ. Christ, the word, is God. And that might seem like a very trite, very simple kind of thing to say from a pulpit. Christ is God, but do you realize the implications it has? He's actually... Jesus was actually God incarnate. Why is this important? It's important on many levels, but just take salvation. Christ's divinity is absolutely necessary for salvation to be effective. Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world because he's God. It's efficient for those who believe, but it's sufficient for the whole world because he's God. He died for the world, it says. And because he's God, he can do that. John also helps us see Jesus as creator. Through him, all things were made. Paul later on writes that great Christology in the first chapter of Colossians where he talks about Jesus in these terms of being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Jesus is the creator. And as we said earlier, creation is orderly. Christ brings brings order to chaos. If you're here today, and your life is in chaos. Christ brings order to that chaos. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Christ brings order. He doesn't bring perfection. When you give your life to Christ, your life does not become perfect but he brings order to it because you start progressively living as God designed you to live 
And slowly over time, and we call this the sanctification process, slowly over time, your life begins to be orderly and make sense. John helps us see the Christ as the light. The first thing God created was light, light from darkness. C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus is the light. He is the light that reveals things. It exposes things. And when you come into confrontation with the living God, Jesus Christ, Christ exposes you. It's one of the things that keeps people away from Christ. It's one of the things that keeps people away from Christ even in the church. Yeah, I like him up on my mantelpiece as a little ceramic thing, but I'm not really going to let him x-ray my life. But that's what he does. He exposes you. And that's what salvation, that's the beginning of salvation. You come into a confrontation with Christ and he exposes your sin. And you go, as, as Paul did on the road to Damascus, as Paul did in Romans, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And that's a good struggle to have, people. Each person that comes into a relationship with Christ must first understand the darkness in their own life, in their own soul, in their own heart, in their own actions. If this has not happened to you, if what I've just described has never happened to you, and maybe you're sitting here considering yourself a Christian, if this has not happened to you, I don't know if you can call yourself a Christian. Because that's the first step. What a wretched man am I. Thanks God for Christ being our Sabbath rest. That's the last thing that he tells us in Genesis 1. Sabbath is so important, not just because it reminds us that we're not home yet, but it reminds us of Christ, our Sabbath rest. Do you want true rest? you want real Sabbath? It's only found in Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes says, everyone who has truly come to Christ has experienced his rest. All the impossible striving to gain salvation is over. You rested in Christ, not yourself. The burden of guilt is lifted. Your soul is light. Have you experienced that rest? Have you been confronted with your sin? And then have you turned to Christ and he has given you rest? That's the wonderful peak that Genesis 1 leaves us at. Have you experienced that rest? Have you exhaled from the struggle of being good enough and doing enough and rested in Christ and his work alone for your salvation? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. My yoke 
is easy. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll receive rest for your souls. You see, Jesus wasn't talking about taking a a break, one in seven. He was saying, take a break from your toil of trying to make it to God and trust in me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will move us and change us at the preaching of it. In Jesus' name, amen.